You are now listening to DTA Radio, where living archives meet airwaves. Hello and welcome to the first episode of Voicing Olive's Legacy, a brand new podcast series by Decolonizing the Archive. I'm your host, Chloe Teali, and today I'll be talking to Yasmin Begum, one of the winners of the 2022 Olive Morris Memorial Awards. Yasmin is an activist, researcher and writer based in Cardiff and active in South Wales. Her recognition is well-deserved, not just because of the breadth of her activism or the depth of her liberational thinking, both of which we'll hear about. But the award connecting Yasmin to Olive is also appropriate because their stories are so similar. Just as Olive did, Yasmin has experienced squatting and she spent time as a teenager in activist spaces. This was a formative political experience for her, just as it was for Olive, that helped her to process and contextualize the injustice that she was seeing in her community. I hope you all enjoy learning about Yasmin's radical stance and work as much as I did. Have you seen the the, the paragraph on you on the olivemorris.org site? Yes, I have. I was really amused by it because I self-nominated for this award. Okay, okay. I was 27 at the time and I self-nominated and I gave a genealogy of everything I've been doing since I was about 12. And I was happy to see that the, the website brought up the No Borders work because we had a No Borders group in Cardiff and we were fighting the hostile environment and the Windrush scandal, but we we didn't have terms for it then. And then we were later spied on by a police officer, so our group disbanded. I'm, I'm really pleased with the paragraph because it opens up with the group that was spied on by the police and it's like, yeah, that's us. Yeah. fascinating and I guess do you feel sort of related to Olive through that because so much of her work was part of that was the not the combatants but the sort of resistance against the police it's funny because the sort of general understanding at the moment is that the police are relatively benevolent but then you see that Olive was continuously fighting against them and now hearing that your group was actively spied on that narrative really falls apart Completely. As someone who was interested in squatting, Olive Morris is the only black, Asian and minority ethnic woman that is prominent within late 20th century British archive. It's not as if I was there as a teenager walking into the archives with a big bag on my back, you know, to take all the books. But that image of the front cover of the squatter's handbook is absolutely iconic in late 20th century British left organising circles. And so is the image of her with the megaphone. And what I like about Olive is that she does a lot of classic campaigning work. Like classic is in, she is a black woman, she organises with black and Asian women to create that organisation. But a lot of the work that she did around uh, resisting state violence offers real brand new radical prisms through which we can understand ideas of resisting state violence, but also the radical imaginary. Because not everything that she did was merely, you know, combating stuff. It was also building stuff and thinking about new ways to do things. So even contemporarily, all of Morris's work would be looked upon as cutting edge because of the conversations that we're having about police abolitionism. So she never did work that compromised her. And I appreciated that because she worked outside of London in Side and Manchester. She worked in London in the legal clinic. She's part of this gold standard of British activists. And what I appreciate is that I've never seen any respectability politics related with the figure of Olive whatsoever. And I felt that sometimes, like I look at figures and I'm like, oh, you were a solicitor, you studied law, you know, you came from this like political background, you know? And in that way, I'd always felt somehow as an activist, I was lacking um, as a working class person, as a being person, as a Muslim, as a woman, because I didn't necessarily have this... Um, like grand genealogy that I could draw on. But I guess Olive Morris sort of gave us that in many ways. She never did work that she felt compromised her. So 
I've really appreciated this as I think that with regards to disproportionate stop and search, incarceration and deaths in police custody, I too have sort of seen like an emergency in my wider community of racism. And so I wanted to immediately respond much in the same way Olive did. And I think long term, part of making this sustainable is to build towards the same things that she did as well. For example, um, we want to maybe not set up no borders again, but certainly set something up that looks at supporting people experiencing racism as well as the proactive FOI requesting police stations and whatnot. I think that um, squatting supported Olive Morris reduce her day-to-day living costs and that she saw a political emergency relating to safeguarding, whether this was the safeguarding of young people against state racism. You've put into words a sentiment I've had for a while about how she kept her overheads low, but also just didn't succumb to respectability politics or to the pressures of living in the 20th, 21st century. With squatting being increasingly criminalised and the laws changing, and I think it was 2009, do you see it as still a viable option and having done it yourself? Or are there alternatives that you would support? Um I think that it's not something I would recommend people do because when the law changed, unfortunately, it meant you couldn't squat places that were residential. So, for example, um, when I was in SOAS, there was a group who squatted a pizza hut and they kept bringing us up saying we've squatted a pizza hut and there's no shower. We're like, of course, there's no shower. It's a pizza hut. And they're like, we couldn't squat a house because it's residential. I'm like, okay, why didn't you go for a bar? Why would I go for a bar? Well, you go for a bar because the landlord lives above the bar and it's not residential, but it's got a shower and a kitchen, ain't it? I didn't think of that. Can you text me any pubs I can break into to squat? No, I can't because that's intent to cause criminal damage if you get caught on your phone with my number. And I put the phone down. So um, the years between 2009 and 2013 irrevocably changed squatting in the United Kingdom. This means that it's not as viable to do. So um, I'm not necessarily sure that it's a goer as much as it was when Olive was alive. In London, you get property guardians where people pay to look after empty properties. You know, I wonder what Olive Morris would think about property guardians. You know, would you say that they were paying to squat? The squat in Cardiff was called the Red and Black Umbrella, and it was um, a hotbed of political organisation and activity. You know, this is where we did the um, anti-imprisonment for police protection work. This is where they can um, put you in prison, chuck chuck the key away and say, oh, well, you come out when I say you're done. Um, It's like a form of um, indefinite detention that's legalised in the United Kingdom. I think that there's... um, If Olive couldn't have squatted, she couldn't have done the work that she did. And we're seeing a lot less work being done. I'm not sure sure how to articulate it. It's like the the promulgation of the white supremacist capitalist heteropatriarchy has led to such a crisis in the cost of living and in living costs and of neoliberal austerity in coloniality that the traditional avenues of radical activism and anti-white supremacist activism are slowly being closed as we see a rise of tri- of what Jung's would call triple oppression. Hearing you speak and having thought about this, we can't practice mutual aid because we're all just so tied down in surviving. But mutual aid would be feasible if there were like a tipping point of people that were capable or radical enough to band together. And they're just somewhere between the individualism that neoliberalism promotes and the individualism that's necessary in the cost of living crisis is... There's just no space, no space for it. I agree. Um, I've been I've been really happy to see the rise of mutual aid society, mutual aid societies. But um, mutual aid societies can't bring people back from the Caribbean. The Windrush scandal. There are loads of people who were deported from Wales, 
And then because Welsh anti-racism is a lot weaker than English anti-racism because of the relationship anti-racism shares with the state, it's like if Windrush victims aren't getting a look-in, Welsh Windrush victims aren't even getting the smallest of look-ins. So um, I think it's a good thing to see, but I worry that as the... Because Cardiff was traditionally like the most like black and Asian place in the UK like 100 years ago. I wonder if we're seeing a decreased level of rad- political radicalism when it comes to third world solidarity as we become more and more British or more and more Welsh. And that makes me feel sad. Because you mentioned that you were doing this when you were really young. So how, how did you get into this and what, what threw you in? Because I'm with No Borders and the anti-raids, I'm seeing a theme on immigration and open borders but was that your main in or was it something else uh yeah that was my main in so um, a bit about me I am my dad was born here I speak Welsh as a second language my dad's parents his dad is from Pakistan and so is his mum and on my mum's side they're Welsh French and Jamaican and so my dad's mum had him when she was 16 when he had me at 20 she was a grandma at 36 I, I still remember my grandparents as being like very young like in their 30s young and like first generation Pakistani and I remember seeing um UKBA raids as a kid and feeling really upset by it people say no oh, yeah is that your granddad he looks too dark to be your granddad like really sort of 90 you know the sort of stuff you think you'd see is portrayed on small acts in the 50s or whatever on the BBC I knew that as someone who was born and raised in Wales that like had a lot of privilege it's not like you're, it's not like you're seven around seven years old walking around like that but then you go to Pakistan when you're eight and people ain't got taps and you're like whoa we've got taps this is a thing taps are a thing and then you realise you've got a better than your cousin just because you've got a tap. And, you, and you're like, well, what if everyone deserves a tap, not just me? So I noticed that from UKBA raids that um, my experiences of racism were different to my grandparents and other first-gen migrants. I saw women in the Pakistani wider community who had married British-born men who hadn't done their paperwork. And so then there was like a habit of women experiencing domestic violence and then needing to stay married to get their visa. Things like this. When I saw the No Borders group in Cardiff, I was 12 or 13 and I got involved because um, it just seemed really natural to me. And we used to like um, make petitions, petition, do campaigns, have meetings. And I hated school. Like I I took out two restraining orders against children because they were racist to me. I got to call the police. It got that bad. So it was um, I used to always skive off school. And then this place, you know, you could go. They wouldn't hassle you at this people's autonomous destination. You could read Bookchin. You could read Goldman. Chomsky or Popkin like I always wanted to do like the conquest of Nan on the experiences of second and third generation like curry house workers after it the no border stuff was what they were like what was big but theoretically looking back the implementation of devolution combined with the rise of neoliberalism and the Windrush scandal we knew of people who were getting picked up outside of prison and being deported and we we're like hold on because um I had uh, male family members who were uh in prisons you know and I just thought hold on a sec so if then you're born in Wales, but then you get addicted to heroin, and then you you get you you have done crime because of your addiction. You get to go back to living in the community, but if you came here on a Pakistani passport when you were five, you get picked up. So it's like the willing and like the deserving and undeserving addict, and it just like blew my mind. This is when G4S became in nomenclature. So then you had An- Angela Davis discussing G4S, you had G4S in Palestine, and then G4S circle in the prison industrial complex. So then. This is when it went from no borders between the ages of like 12 and 16 towards generic campaigning work. So when I was 16, I was elected as the further education representative of the National Union of Students Black Student Campaign Wales, which is the longest thing in the world to say. And I noticed that because of Syria, students weren't allowed to like like go to the doctors, basically. 
And then it's like, hold on a sec, healthcare's devolved in Wales. I noticed that within the realm of, you know, devolution, there was like a lot of gains to be made. And then I, um, I went to university. I did the university thing at SOAS. And then um, my boss, who was Sakib Dashmuk from that poll, he told me that the best way to make a change was to go where, you know, I'll go back to where you came from. But yeah, literally go back to, you know, to go back to Wales even. And yeah, so it's always been something that's there because of how, you know, my, my parents growing up, they knew like uh, members of the Cardiff Three. So I grew up in quite a politicised atmosphere. I knew for a fact that we were seeing higher rates of like BME people in Wales going to prison, but I had no way to prove it. I just noticed that like every other person seemed to be um, having that experience. So then there was no borders to policing, to stop and search work, to NUS work, and then university, and then corporate racial equality work, and then sort of a horizontalization where I realised I was like pouring all of my time into groups. And I was always the woman doing the admin or doing the Google Drive or doing this or doing that. And that my time was better spent as like a bit of a lone campaigner. So when they threw Colston in the river in Bristol, I knew that we couldn't chuck Picton in the in the canal in Cardiff. But if we wrote a petition, we could get like 7,000 people to say, yeah, Pick- Thomas Picton as the pirate of Trinidad shouldn't be there. But it makes me feel a bit angry because I know that when I write the petition to get rid of Thomas Picton, and then Thomas Picton is gotten rid of, and then the National Museum interrogate what decolonizing Picton means a lot of anti-racist campaigning ends up legitimizing the state. The groups on the list are any of them still functioning? Because again, I looked online and there isn't much. The Cardiff People of Colour group that went up and then went down. No borders. Cardiff went up and when they went down because of spying. So did South Wales. Um, please, could you read me out the other ones? Yeah, it's thank you. The other two are People's Autonomous Destination and the Anti-Raids Network. Oh, yeah. So the People's um, Autonomous Destination, that was an autonomous space that was set up in Splot in Cardiff from 2005 to 2010. This was um, part of like the Marco work. This was all the work that Marco spied on, basically. And then Anti-Raids, this was um, a loose network or group of people that basically did stuff. You know, it was like, hi, do you think, you you know, um, has your business been affected by X, Y, Z? You know, would you like to... um, we used to approach organisations or people or we used to offer training, basically, when it came to um, this UKBA raid. You mentioned her way of making things happen and building the groups and working together. And I'm I'm looking at the groups on the list and I didn't really see much of them online. They kind of fell out in 2008, 2015. And I was going to ask, is that because they're no longer active or because the work that's happening is just not happening online and it's just continued by the people meeting and organizing and working in that way? I think it's a bit of both. So I think that the climates of campaigning within England and Wales around racial equality, or better put, resisting the white supremacist capitalist heteropatriarchal patriarchy, you know, what is it, the white supremacist capitalist imperialist patriarchy, that's the one. I think it's a bit of both. So Marco Jacob spying on the rad- on the group in Cardiff was confirmed in 2010 or so, which meant that that movement disbanded. But then we began to squat in Cardiff. And this is where we began to do um, work with the Smash IPP committee. There were um, demonstrations that took place from the squats to um, Cardiff Police Station. Not, sorry, my apologies. So there was, um, we did demonstrations in 2012 from Splot in East Cardiff to um, Cardiff Prison. And I think that we're seeing like a burgeoning age of neoliberalism in Wales because of devolution. 
And I think that this has gone hand in hand with a deracialization of of discourse within the UK, where we've gone from the Race Relations Act to the Equality Act. Within when now we're in a position where um, the highest levels of disproportionate incarceration of black people in the United Kingdom is in Wales, but we're not seeing those prison abolitionism movements come out of you know come out of Wales. And if they we are, so for example. Larry Davis of Swansea BLM, she's Welsh, Ghanaian. She was approached by the police to spy on people. Um, in HMP Berwen, um, Ingard, the Welsh group, the Welsh radical group for independence, I did FOI requests that I gave to Ingard that proved that there was a pattern of discrimination against Welsh language speakers. But as Black, Asian and minority ethnic people don't have that same recognition under the Equality Act as the Welsh Language Act, the prison industrial complex can't exist without racial disproportionality at a time of rising neoliberalism and a historic underrepresentation of campaigns relating to anti-racism in Wales. So I think that we're not seeing those groups anymore because of neoliberalism, but also because of how quickly racial inequality is rising in Wales, that maybe we haven't got the capacity to build to resist it as quickly as we could. Like For example, we've got a cop watch group, but it requires a lot of energy to maintain these things. And there's a certain, I think that the, the, um, <clears throat> the creation of the racial quality sector has damaged it as well. Because the Ethnic Minorities and Youth Support Team with Race Alliance Wales did a report on racism in policing that asked the police to listen more to communities, to create a community reference group. Um, could you imagine what Olive Morris would, would have said if say, someone went up to her and said, hi, Olive, is all right if we have a community reference group to promote equality in Moss Side where you're volunteering, <laughs> like in Moss Side of all areas? So um, when I look back at these historic figures like Olive, I don't feel as disheartened as I do day to day. I've noticed that since I graduated, since I worked as a researcher in racial inequality for the ethnic minorities and youth support team when I left university, um, I noticed that grassroots in Wales and that we weren't really seeing groups anymore. And so I volunteered with the first three um, Black Lives Matter Cardiff groups and did admin on the side, basically. But we're not really seeing groups emerge. I don't think in the same way in Wales because of like nationalism, because, you know, nearly one in three people supports Welsh national um, in independent Wales. So I think a lot of people are seeing nationalism as the vehicle to jump on. And then including like BME individuals as well, would you say? Um, I'm so sorry. I forgot what I just said. That um, people are seeing Welsh nationalism as the vehicle to jump on. Yes, definitely. Like, for example, um, Yes Cymru didn't have a BME group and then a BME group was set up called Yes Cymru POC. And we changed our name from Yes Cymru POC to POC for Indy when we found out that Mahmoud Mohammed Hassan had died following police custody in January 2021 because we didn't want white whales to think that Yes Cymru is fighting deaths in police custody when they're not. So then we changed our name and we launched a campaign um, so if you could like type in POC for Indy and then type in Mah- Mah- Mahmoud Mohammed Hassan. So my friend used to babysit him when he was a child and the police with Mark Duggan, the police didn't confirm the death that allowed the officers to all get on the same page and start singing from the same hymn sheet. So Lee Jasper broke the news on his blog, like Bain Lawyers for Justice. That blog went viral. That blog went out. I rang my mate. My mate confirmed his death. We changed our name. And then we started to campaign. And the thing is, is that in this Twitter thread, I wrote a Twitter thread about his last hours. And then there was a call to arms at the end, which was the petition calling for the release of CCTV and body cam footage. And that, like, um, Tion Wayne retweeted us. <laughs> what? Got like seven or 8,000 retweets. And I used it as an opportunity to be antagonistic towards the police. And I was like, at South Wales Police, are you not confirming this death so all of your officers can get on the same hymn sheet and start saying the same thing? So um, I think a lot of being, you know, we uh, being people seeing that Welsh nationalism as something to like explore, really, 
but we were the first BME Welsh nationalist group and we changed our name merely so we could launch this campaign against deaths in police custody. Yes Cymru, within five days, had set up a group called Yes Cymru Bame, and Yes Cymru Bame had edited the Independence in Your Hand book. Um, it's like that Alanis Morissette song. Like They'd edited this PDF, and in this PDF they put information on disproportionate incarceration and stop and search, and it was only after the death in police custody. So I'm not necessarily sure that um, organisations that promote Welsh independence have got the best, you know, do they want to get rid of racism and white supremacy, or do they want a Welsh guy to disproportionately stop and search who speaks Welsh and a Welsh language speaking IOPC? Because <laughs> that would be radical for them. So there's that tension there. Massively so. Like, uh, we've never had a black woman elected to the Senate, we had our first ageing woman elected to the Senate last year, and she was a Conservative. So do you think that's your sort of next avenue of work, looking at how the anti-racist work can be done without feeding into the state? That's what I'm really interested in. I think that experiences of Black, Asian and minority ethnic working class people in 20th century Britain, places like Liverpool, like Manchester... Cardiff, um, South Shield. Um, you know, there were many um, Black and Asian-run communist groups in Cardiff. There were Chinese Somali riots in the 1920s. You know, the Somali people, they were striking. They brought in Chinese sailors to break the strike. And then, you know, kids are told, don't walk down Butte Street. The Chinese and the Somalis are shooting at each other again. And there's no history of the, of complete history of the 1919 race riots or the intra-BAME race riots or the histories of Black communism or le- legacies of Asian communism here. So I'd be really interested to look at how to decolonize and dismantle the pre-existing archives on BAME communities in Wales to understand how we've gone from being policed as British subjects to British citizens and the nature of coloniality that still exists around engagement, heritage and activism because people went door to door after the 19 race riots in Cardiff that I left on a fiver to go home and I see this as no different from like the racist van. So then we can point to the Alien Order Act of 1920 as an early example of racist legislation to affect British BAME communities and I think that as we're seeing this historical renaissance, I'm, I'm keen to see Wales as part of it as well. So that's your focus somewhere between this, looking into the particularly the BAME history of Cardiff and that relationship between Welsh anti-racist work and English anti-racist work. Is this alongside what job did you say you were doing at the moment? At the moment, I'm unemployed. I was offered um, a job as the project decolonisation officer at the National Library of Wales because they didn't give me a job description or person specification, so they withdrew the job offer. And it's the first time the job was ever made in the history. They assumed I didn't speak Welsh when I did and then lowballed me on the job offer. And it's like, what makes you think Yasmin Bacon doesn't speak Welsh? My goodness. So at the moment, I'm unemployed, but... I'm delighted to say that must be incredibly frustrating just because it was so aligned with what you just said about the yes and no I reckon yeah would Olive Morris decolonize the archive as a synonym for due regard under the public sector equality duty or would she say this is cleaning up institutional racism I'm not on this They've done me a favour because I think that a lot of decolonisation work outside of major institutions in the M25 is a synonym for the practice of equality, diversity and inclusion relating to a lack of work under the public sector equality duty that replaced the Race Relations Act duty of 2000. So in one way, they've done me a huge favour because now I can hold my head up when I walk to the halal meat shop. (laughs) But I co-wrote a bid with a black, Asian and minority ethnic led creative organisation for 150k that includes creating an archive of like working class Cardiffian people who are we're embargoed by the Welsh government until they announce it. But if I said yes to this library job, I couldn't do this cool job with like the oral history of Butte Town Carnival. So swings and roundabouts. I think Olive would probably be more likely to work on an oral history project in Manchester than to be working in the National Library in West London. And I think, yeah, it's all right, you know. 
you you spoke about deciding to be a lone activist and the work you did on sorry the statue do you see yourself wanting to return to group work is your future more an individual work um I 1000% see myself as returning to group work. I think that um, another, you know, if we've got the unsexy side of neoliberalism, we also have the sexy side of the emergence of the single author or single genius activist and the rock star activist, which is contingent upon the individual as a self. I think it's a bit nasty. The group that we set up with the People's Autonomous Destination, I joined that when I was, so I was born in 93. I joined that one out the year in 2006. We found out he was a cop in 2011. And then from 2011 to 2015, I was with NUS, BSE, and I was with other associated campaigns afterwards. But sometimes I find it like a lot quicker to like ring up a parent whose kid has experienced the race hate crime in school and lay out all of the avenues and opportunities and set up a group. So I think that because of like the pandemic, like England is looking more at England, Wales is looking more at Wales, everyone has become more inwardly facing. Um, I was grateful to write the, the statue for the, the petition for the removal of the Picton statue. I 1000% see my future within group work and not an individual work. I feel that I've done the group work. I've done the being spied on the police thing. I've done trying to set up anti-racist groups and not getting anywhere or being exploited. Like, for example, when I was um, volunteering with Black Lives Matter Cardiff, the special advisor for equalities at the Welsh government tried to organise all BLMs across Wales on one slate. And we were told by the head of a trade union that the special advisor for equalities was going to organize all the BLMs and then say that she led the movement because we were doing like huge demos in town. Uzu Awobi, who was the special advisor for equalities, convened BLMs, all the BLMs in Wales, apart from BLM Cardiff, Newport and Swansea, and got £6,000 from the Welsh government of funding while refusing to confirm to us if she was going to apply for funding. So where groups are being set up, like um, Siv and Anand from the Institute of Race Relations said in the 80s that the black and Asian middle class got rich off the backs of, they, they got rich off the backs of kids who were rioting going to prison. And right now, after deaths in police custody, two deaths in police custody, stop and search and disproportionate incarceration, any radical group that is like, uh, does come up from the ground, that does emerge, they try to eat it, a bit like Balhooks eating the other. It's like, oh, I'll swallow you, I'll, I'll amalgamate you into my own work. So I think that I want to set up a group resist things. I, the reason I see the work as being group work is because I think that the cult of the single campaigner is dangerous. And I think that we need to horizontalize our skills in collectives so that we're able to resist neoliberalism and rising racial inequality, even though it's useful for one person solo to sometimes do a petition by themselves. <laughs> I'm really keen to stress it's okay to campaign by ourselves, but with groups that have emerged that get, you know, if Olive, Olive Morris was alive today, like she could be on like a ridiculous amount of money a year doing corporate campaigning. And I think that the cult of the single campaigner goes hand in hand with the sort of corporate campaigning that we're seeing. And I think that it's really damaging, really, really damaging because people, we're not campaigning because we believe in stuff. We're campaigning thinking, oh, this might look good, but we can't really say what we want in case we don't get a job out of it. In the group that you want to set up, do you feel the need to strategize so that it's sustainable without that funding and to be safe against penetration like the People's Autonomous Destination was? Do you have a vision to, for how to achieve that? Yes, I do. I think that it should remain autonomous. I don't think that it should get state funding, but I'm not necessarily sure what it looks like at this point because of um, there, there's a lot of opportunities to be to talk on behalf of the black, Asian and minority ethnic community as a light-skinned dual heritage woman for a white-led organisation to set up a BME chapter. I don't want that. 
I don't want to join Labour for Indie Wales and be part of their BME section. I don't want to join Yes Cymru and head up a BME bit. I would like to set something up. And I think that it's about whether or not it's autonomous, what that autonomy looks like and the decision making process. And I think that it, it, the work would have to be planned for it to survive. So, for example, when the Mahmoud Mohammed Hassan inquest takes place in August or July of 2022, we need to have all of our FOI requests then on disproportionate stop and search and how much strategic anti-racism and equality action plans cost. So then we can write a short report about the performance of EDI under the pandemic. Sakib Deshmukh, who was the head of Hackney Youth Services, I mentioned Sakib before, he worked with young people who undertook peer-led research on policing in Hackney during the pandemic, and they found that racist disproportionality went up. So I think that once you start doing campaigning work with a group, and then you do it robustly in this way, it will be easy to make it organic and to get more people. We need a group like this, basically, because if I didn't have forums like this where I could express myself 17 years ago when I was 12, you know, I... I might be a Lib Dem. <laughs> Maybe not a Lib Dem, but I would have been sucked into the corporate apparatus of Labour, Conservative Party, Clyde Cymru, Lib Dems, and the exposure to figures like Morris, Book Chin, I don't know, Amrit Wilson, people like this. It allowed me to see um, a radical possibility. But then um, I sort of look at the petition, you know, the 30 plus thousand signatories on the Mahmoud petition. The fact that Picton was removed when the head of Clyde Cymru said that Wales deserved reparations because it was colonised. I took um, he later apologised via email to me, so I sent it to the BBC, and the BBC said like Adam Price apologises in this big row. So then what I did is that I picked up a football and I kicked it over to Welsh Labour, Black, Asian, and minority ethnic, who then sort of argued with Adam Price in public, and I went back to anti-prison work. I learned this a lot from groups how to like have an issue, build towards a catalyst point and then disseminate bits of it so that it would live on. So in this case, Adam Price Adam Price has made a racist comment. I've leaked it to the press. Labour have picked it up and like respectability politics, middle class, black, Asian and minority ethnic labour are now arguing with Plaid Cymru. So I don't have to. And I think that having those forums, working together, group work, collaborative work, horizontalization work and planning the work in advance around things like when inquests are going to be, or the anniversaries of police violence or state violence is really important. Like, um, there's no plaque in Cardiff to commemorate the race riots of 1919. But I think that any group that did stuff around this area, it could be an idea to put up a plaque commemorating it. Yeah, there's the de-radicalisation of these movements through the industrialization of the field. You use such better words than I just have, but do you, no, do you no, know what I, I mean? No, I haven't, I haven't. It's just because I live on Twitter because I'm unemployed at the moment, aren't I? So I'm like, ooh, <laughs> I just so-and-so say something snappy in 280 characters or less. <laughs> yeah. Do you see some value in that? Or do you think that ultimately it's just, what's the word, a laundering process without any real impact for most people? I think um, it's a laundering process, but it's a laundering process that could send rice to Pakistan or give you money to send to Pakistan to buy rice. So on one hand, theoretically, epistemologically, epistemically, I think that this is bad form. But in terms of praxis, we're going to say, listen, yeah, you're a first gen migrant. Your job is tied to your visa, but this isn't radical enough for me, even though you send your mother money every month. You know, that's not the most disgusting look in the world. I think we see a lot of it in England and a lot of it in Wales and it's growing. I think Neon is a good example of it. Neon is um, an organisation that offers campaigning training. 
offers good training, it's valid and legitimate, but NEON is emblematic of other organisations that embody the neoliberalism and the industrialized, basically like a, a campaigning industrial complex. And I struggle with it. Like, for example, um, Edge Fund. Edge Fund don't really fund Wales-based groups. And two or three years in a row, Edge Fund have emailed me asking me to do work to subsidize their work, but I would work for free. So then Edge Fund is like a left-wing corporate organization. As you know, it's an organization that runs um, training and um, campaigning, but for any of these to exist within like uh, the white supremacist, white supremacist capitalist heteropatriarchy is contingent upon capitalism and then campaigning as a model. And, you know, um, campaigning as a model, I don't know, I just, when Neon does climate change training, and it's UK generic, but then they want Wales-based participants without understanding devolution. When Cardiff is 20% BME and amongst the top six cities worldwide vulnerable to climate change because of the sea levels, I think these organisations, while, while they are well-meaning, they set us back and it's epistemologically potentially insincere territory. I think it's a bit of a campaigning industrial complex that, that so many of our friends and family members are hired within it or have their wages from it, that it's become taboo. But whether or not we realise it, it allows campaigning to be a fox and hound. So, for example, Race Council Cymru convened BLM Cymru. BLM Cymru did is the fox. They are the fox that says that um, there is racism. And then Race Council Cymru, which is headed by the former special advisor of equalities of the Welsh government, becomes the hound in chasing organisations. And I think that when it comes to corporate campaigning, combined with the rise of the race equality sort of sector, this has got really weird implications when it comes to abolitionism and what abolitionism looks like or abolitionist discourses on hate crime. Because it's, um, it's, it's too easy to get someone in to give you a workshop who's a professional campaigner through an organisation. But emboldening the the police you know is it theoretically right to signpost people to an institutionally racist police force so that the police can become a greater arbiter of what isn't isn't racist violence and i think that professional campaigning is tied up with this whether or not people necessarily realize it and i think that i don't feel comfortable with where it's going I can't really see a fair and equitable future where, when it comes to organisations like this within the landscape that we share, because they share an extractive relationship that is predicated and contingent on the theft of intellectual labour from grassroots campaigners and activists. Makes me tampin. Heavy stuff that really pulls it together very tightly. Thank you. I think about it loads because um, everyone does it, but we're not allowed to talk about it or what happens when neon training doesn't work for example, because someone might campaign and they might campaign for three weeks and be really good at it and win something. But then someone might campaign and do it as part of their job and get paid for it. So then it doesn't really put money in people's pockets either sometimes. That answer somehow gives a lot of context to what you were saying at the beginning about feeling the need for more support and more people doing the work in Wales when you think about the breadth of everything. And I imagine you know a few people that, like you said, you hate the football over, you know the few people that are doing the work and where they're doing it. Do you have hope for the way to draw more from Cardiffians, did you say? Yeah, that's a, that's that's our denonym, Cardiffians. Bianca Ali, who is a member of Black Lives Matter Cardiff in the Vale, was arrested and went to court because she organised demonstrations 
during the lockdown. Basically, she was organising demonstrations against deaths in police custody after Mahmoud Mohammed Hassan died following police custody in January 2021 after being in Cardiff Bay Police Station. South Wales police are really, were really worried that it might break out into a riot situation. I'm worried that it's going to have we're going to have to see a catalyst or a breaking point for it to become better. And I think that this is partially why we've had to wait nearly two years for the inquest into the death of Mahmoud Mohammed Hassan. Cardiff is home to the oldest continuous black population in 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 Britain, and Cardiff is still very very racially segregated. Like one in five people in Cardiff is being. And I'm like having lived here all my life, most of my life. My parents both being born and raised here. I feel frustrated in that, on one hand, I would like my city to be more equal and fair. But on the other hand, we're seeing exceptional levels of like worker alienation in late capitalist society. So if people want to go to work and then come home and watch EastEnders and eat a big bag of crisps because they're depressed, I'm putting an unfair burden of duty of care on them based on what I think they should be doing, which is why I think that Morris is working, setting up, um, gosh, she... I think it was food, food and Moss Side. Uh, she was in Moss Side People's Centre and she, because she was part of the Race Today Collective and the Race Today Collective alongside Darkus Howe and other writers split from the Institute of Race Relations. The Institute of Race Relations is gradually becoming, dare I say, less relevant than it was 30 or 40 years ago. And she could see that like all that time ago. Sorry, I forgot what you asked me because I went on the Wikipedia page. No, it's all right. You were, you were making just this really good point about how if people just want to relax and be themselves after the grind then that's fair I, I yeah yes I know I just I struggle with it because in Wales it's like the organ like the government gives money to organizations to do anti-racism work to mitigate racism that's really important but this also means that the traditional radical grassroots work is now work that is paid work which means that we we have an industry emerging so the traditional pathways and forums where radical discourse might arise that's not happening now because of the growth of the racial equality industrial complex in Wales that's grown ex- you know chapter art center in card in Cardiff is Wales's largest independent cinema it's like the Tesco's of independent cinemas it's got a bar it's got a shop it's got two cinemas it's got a theater space it's got a dance studio it's got office spaces it's got a garden and then when george floyd died they put out a statement saying it was really sad that he died and that the black lives matter statement that many organizations put out after he passed away but they didn't put out a statement when mahmoud or moya died despite the fact that mahmoud died in cardiff and moya died in newport but they did get the the police had kept having their cars vandalized so they said hi chapter art center please can we park our cars in your car park. So from my point of view, they gave them substantial support in kind in saving on car parking and saving on their cars being vandalised. And now Chapter Art Centre is hiring an equality, diversity and inclusion officer for £35,000 a year. I'm just not sure necessarily what the answer is because the whole reason that the cars ended up in the car park in the first place is because they were being vandalised by local kids who were writing uh, justice for Mahmoud on them. So I think that setting up a group like this, we could do things as simple as FOI request disproportionate stop and search, make the case that it's an issue, and then launch a campaign to get to write a petition to get 100 signatories to make the people in the Senate debate it to make stop and search training a mandatory part of the curriculum when it comes to personal and social education and then monitor to see what the impact is but I'm I need to realize I'm not Ibiza or Anglesey or the Isle of Man like I'm not an island you know and that even though I know it's a good idea for kids to get stop and search training I need to try to holistically build towards not only like support towards building but also try to give back and not be a matriarch it's like who do you think you are not coming to the streets meeting I'm going to come and get you you can't have that sort of attitude you know
and it just to that point, it sounds like if if the kids are saying justice for Mahmood, then then there is support there. Perhaps not. You you've clearly got this incredible long term vision for it, but you know the the alignment is there. That's what I'm thinking. So then, if we do stuff like get the stop and search training, if we make sure that you get stop and search training in the language you speak, so then for people that do this as part of their job or could do could deliver it. We could ensure that practitioners have got work going into schools, delivering these workshops. And then if a kid says, oh, miss, the police officer told me he was going to extraordinarily rendition me to Anglesey, we'll be like, what? And then when, from the, the disclosures that children give, there might be an opportunity for partnership work between that school that you've done the workshop in, like, say, the most BME school in this whole area and yourself. And then it's like peer research on the police. Who's going to say no to that? Like, oh, no, the kids can't do research. The kids can't explore democracy. Can't have the kids doing that, you know. But yeah, so long term, but I'm just worried we're going to get spied on or the government will try to co-opt us or, you know, someone will try to make us a constituted charity against our consent, which is what happened with BLM Cardiff. Yeah, but the person who did it, their parents used to menace everyone. And if we'd all told our parents so-and-so's doing this, they would have told us to stay away. So community is important. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Yasmin. You can find her on Twitter at Punkistani93. That's P-U-N-K-I-S-T-A-N-I-9-3. I'll leave you with some recommendations she gave me for media on Cardiff of the 80s. It's something called Ebony 1984. Uh, If you type it in YouTube, it comes up. And um, it's a black magazine show that went on the road to Cardiff. So there'll be images of pre-gentrified Cardiff that your parents will recognise. And then the other one, this might be more up your street than their street. The second one is called Unsafe Convictions, and it's about the Cardiff 3 case. So BBC Panorama did their own investigation in 1992 that found shock the police lied. And um, the findings from that documentary reopened the case and they also rewrote the law for pace, pace laws. Uh, so if you type in like Unsafe Convictions, BBC Panorama, the Cardiff 3, that'll come up. And um, it's got a really interesting breakdown of the type of um, institutional racism and police corruption that took place in Cardiff in the Cardiff Three case in the late 80s, because um, in the in the Ebony film, um, like 3,000 um, Bane people left Cardiff in the 80s alone, you know, so there was like a huge depopulation. So I think that, like, um, I really hope you enjoyed them as much as I do. Decolonizing the archive, recontextualizing and recreating a past, present and future that includes you.